0: Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. just want to add my voice to Darren's and expressing gratitude for the moms uh, in our church, in our lives. Um, I always also want to be quick to point out that the very essence of mothering is sacrificial love, uh, bringing life into this world, speaking life into people's lives. And um, we've got multiple ladies in our church who are not uh, moms physically, but I just would commend you and tell you happy Mother's Day as well, because you do a wonderful job caring for children in our church, in our lives, and in your life, whether it's extended family or in your neighborhood or right here in this church. And so I thank you for being life givers and life speakers um, and for seeking the best uh, for kids. I know many of you have ministered grace to my own children. And so happy Mother's Day to you as well. Um, and I want to thank you for your ministry well also i want to thank you folks for participating last week in that um pre-quiz that i gave you and lots and lots of you participated i i think nearly everyone that was here uh, was able to participate last week got a lot of those back Uh, some of you were not able to be with us or some of you may not have turned yours in uh, yet and if you haven't um, i have some extras i'm not going to hand them out right now um, but i have some extras blanks for uh, those of you that maybe didn't get it this is going to help me in my doctoral program Beginning next week, we're going to actually pause Nehemiah, and it's actually a perfect time for a pause, um, because it's going to be all about how do we really understand community from a perspective of being in Christ, Um, and so these quizzes will help me as I write those lessons and as I work through those, Uh, and then we'll go back to Nehemiah. Um, I think actually when I finish this series, I have a preaching break. Darren will preach for me for a few weeks, and then we'll be back at Nehemiah, so um, some of you... (laughs) Uh, it, was, it was funny last week uh, a dear lady was telling me yeah when she heard I was preaching Nehemiah um, her first reaction was that's a boring book and, um, and which I thought was very funny because I agree and but then as we've gotten into it it's I, I don't know about you but it's just a blessing to my soul and I just love it and it's deep and um, God's using it so we will get back to Nehemiah uh, but there'll be about an eight-week pause as I work through these things and uh, by God's grace wrap that up so all that to say if you didn't bring your quiz back or turn in last week I've got blanks here. Really, 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 really helpful if I could get those from you today. So see me afterwards. I'll try to make my way to the back uh, this morning as well. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're right here in the middle of this really important section. Chapters 7 and 11 are kind of bookends about what's God doing in this community. And then we have 8, 9, and 10 in the middle. And so we're seeing these restoration moments. Restoration of the word and restoration of community and restoration of commitment. And so we're in the second half of chapter eight. It's a fascinating passage uh, because they're celebrating a feast. Now, not being Jewish, and, and I'm not aware of anyone in our church that, that is Jewish. Um, my guess is you didn't. You grew up the way I did in the sense you didn't celebrate Jewish feasts, right? You didn't. You didn't celebrate Passover that way. You didn't celebrate a Day of Atonement or Rosh Hashanah, um, and you certainly didn't celebrate Sukkot and um, these feasts. And so there's lots of details here that actually become. Uh, incredibly fascinating, and they're all about community. Nehemiah goes from the Feast of Trumpets, the first half of chapter 8, and he skips right past Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is the middle of the month. He goes right to the end of the month uh, with the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. Um, and, and so why does he do that? Well, because he's telling a story. So it's not that they wouldn't have celebrated the Day of Atonement, but rather Nehemiah is communicating, just like a, a, a preacher Forms a sermon. Here's cross references. Here's texts. Here's illustrations. Here's stories. Nehemiah, as he's telling the story, wants to emphasize something, and what he's emphasizing is community. God rebuilding. The walls have been rebuilt. Now he's rebuilding a community, a culture, a people in Jerusalem. It's fascinating because researchers have discovered something. Um, they've discovered that we enjoy life better when we do it with others. Um, they, they actually have done studies where they bring people into a room who don't know each other at all, and they give them all chocolate. Uh, and it's really good-tasting chocolate. It's amazing chocolate. Uh, they tell the people you can't talk to each other. Um, and then afterwards, you grade the chocolate on how well you enjoyed it. Uh, and so if you're a chocolate lover, you're, you're sitting here, where can I sign up for that study? So they bring all these people in the room, and this is what they discovered. If, if you eat the chocolate alone, say on a scale of 1 to 10, you, you might have given it a 5 or 6 if you ate it in the same room with other people you didn't even talk to or know, they automatically scaled the chocolate as tasting better. It physically tasted better to you by being able to enjoy it in the presence of other people enjoying it. They've discovered then that community, doing things with a group of people, intensifies our enjoyment of good things. Well, we, I think we already know this maybe subconsciously even, um, you get invited to a birthday party or anniversary celebration, what is this, a graduation, come celebrate with us. Um, we all know if your sports team is, is going to win, you want to you watch them win with other people, right? So uh, you want to be in the stadium in your living room or out at a restaurant or whatever, and you want to cheer with your friends and, and enjoy it, it just makes it seem better. Well, it is, it's scientifically proven, it intensifies, heightens the enjoyment of good things. Now, there's the bad side, because it also actually intensifies negative experiences when experienced with others. So they would then also bring the same kind of group of people in. They'd give them uh, something that looked like good chocolate, but it was actually bad. And it tasted nasty. It was gross. And um, they didn't enjoy it all. You know, uh, <laughs> All these people, they claim to love dark chocolate. I don't believe you. Um, it's gross, you know, oh, it has antioxidants. Yeah, that's called medicine to help you not have cancer. Great, that's a goodness. That ain't the same as tasting good. You do you, though. That's fine. You do you. So they bring people in, they give them something, that doesn't taste great. So whatever it is you don't like that doesn't taste great. Canned asparagus is number one on my list of horrible things. So that that's like, I'm telling you, they could use that at Gitmo. You could get people to confess all kinds of crimes, to, you know, it's so... It tastes terrible. So you might grade it on a two. Like, this is horrible. If you're with other people also not enjoying it, it tastes worse to you. So now what are we supposed to do? Because in one sense, it's like, I want the good things in life to be even better. Do it with others. But I definitely don't want the negatives of life to get any worse. So am I supposed to go through those alone? Should I just live neutral? I'll be a hermit. And so I'm base level. Nothing's ever too great, nothing's ever too bad. Well, the other thing researchers have discovered, though, is experiencing negative things with others has other incredible benefits. You experience something very positive with other people, it it forms a little bit of a glue with those other people. Creates relational connection. But they've discovered it's passing, it's fleeting, and it's not very strong. You experiencing something negative with someone else, it creates a much more intense glue relationally. In other words, you go through bad things with other people, it knits your heart to them. It connects you. And there's all kinds of other mental, social, spiritual and emotional benefits to that, aren't there? Because we all know there's a unique, unique pain when you suffer alone. So the loneliness of suffering makes it worse. And so while you may feel something negatively more intensely because you feel it with others, it actually also protects you, preserves you, and helps you, helps you to rebound quicker from the negative experience. So research is simply proving what God said. The world wasn't good till he had made a community. Adam alone, he could not declare his creation good. It wasn't until he created Eve. It was his intention for us always to do life in community. And so whether we see it in family communities, whether we see it in God's covenant people, the nation of Israel, whether we see it modern day in the church, he's always intended for us to do life with others. This is a reflection of the way God created the world, and it's a reflection of the Trinity itself, one God, three persons. And so I want you to understand as we head into this last part of chapter 8, this feast of booths that they're going to celebrate, it's all about a community knitting together over rejoicing and shared negative experience. It's all intended to teach us this. When we celebrate God's work in our wilderness, it can knit our hearts to him and to others. It's amazing. They've even discovered that when you share a negative experience and you're, you have that relational knitting together, it transcends just that negative experience, and you start reaching into one another's lives in much deeper ways. Uh, you know, the truth is we're all going to go through highs and lows of life. You don't, you don't have to try to create them. You're going to go through them, and the question is: If you're going to go through them in a way that God can use to make you love Jesus more, and to feel His love more, and to know others better, to be loved and to be loved to love them and to be loved by them, if you're going to try to do it in a lone wolf way, which He never designed or, intend, or intended, and so how can we understand this? Well, let's go ahead and let me read down through Nehemiah chapter eight. I'm going to begin at verse thirteen. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. And then by God's grace, we'll unpack that together this morning. On the second day... And so it appears they start the first day of the feast with the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, They blew the trumpets. Everybody comes. They're all gathered around to hear the word. And on the second day of this kind of activity, as they're reading the word, they come to a particular point in, in the text. And so whether it's in Mosaic writing, whether it's in Leviticus, we're not totally sure where they're at. Nehemiah doesn't think that's important. It's just this is when they hear it. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out. And brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. You might remember you have these three feasts that take place during this month. Um, they are in this—it's the month of Tishri or Tisira. Um, It's the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. They had both a, a lunar calendar and a regular calendar, and so the dates are constantly shifting. It's very different from our kind of calendarization. It marks the end of the agricultural cycle as they're heading into winter. This is the fall feast. And so the seventh month is packed with them. The first was Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then the fifteenth, it began for a whole week, the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. Um, And so as they're celebrating all of these feasts, the, the Jews are probably not fully realizing the impact of it. God is intending to give them a picture, an image, so that as they're celebrating these feasts, they're actually celebrating what the gospel itself is. The first feast, the Feast of Trumpets, is all about the presence of the word. The word comes into their culture, into their community, into their lives. The response to the word should be one of faith and belief, repentance, Turning from your sins. That's Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. We all gather together, and the high priest is going to go and he's going to sprinkle blood on the, the Ark of the Covenant and going to seek God's forgiveness for the entire nation. That's the response to the Word. And then the third thing, then, is we travel following Him. Whatever God tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. This is a picture of the gospel. You don't know who you are until the Word comes and says you're a sinner. And it defines you as a sinner. It tells you the law, and tells you all the ways you've been bro- you've broken the law. It tells you the consequences of your sin. The word comes into our lives. How should we respond to the word? With repentance and belief. And then what do we do from there? We follow. And Jesus makes it very clear: take up your cross and follow me. Uh, he he says, if you're his friend, you do whatever he tells you to do, whatever things he has commanded you. Um, the Sermon on the Mount ends with the admonition. Uh, the people who build their house on the shifting sand are the people who are lost. They hear his words, but they do not obey his word. When they do not obey his word, they are set up for destruction. But those who obey, hear what he says, and obey it, then they build their house on the rock, and it stands forever. And so the, 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 the truth is out there. Hear the word, see who you are, and respond rightly and then follow. The seventh month were feasts to celebrate the gospel. They are a picture of the gospel. And so the most important thing is the word, the word coming into their lives. What's fascinating is that God has woven it into their very culture to impact them on a personal way. And so when we come to this feast of booths, and it's its fascinating what they would do, they'd go in, they'd get all these branches and sticks, and they'd create these little very temporary huts um, outside of their homes, on the, in the courtyard, lean-tos up against their house, on the roofs of their house. Um, everybody moves out of their, their permanent abode, their permanent structure, to live in this just temporary thing to celebrate what it was like in the wilderness. When they lived in the wilderness, the wilderness has really uh, some dominant ways we think about it. In their wilderness wanderings for 40 years in the desert, it's a place of great need. They don't know where to go. When you're in the wilderness, you don't know what to do. You ever been in a wilderness? You don't know what to do? You don't have a decision to make? You don't know how to function? James 1 tells us if we lack wisdom, we can ask God. Children of Israel didn't know where to go, and so what did God do? He gave them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud in the day. You don't know where to go? Follow the the cloud. Follow the fire. You need direction? Here you go. You don't have meat? Here's, Here's quail. You don't have bread? Here's manna. You don't have water? Here's water from the rock. Wilderness is a place that first and foremost has everything to do with our neediness. The wilderness of your life and of my life exposes us. We're not as smart as we think we are. We're not as wise as we wish we were. We can't seem to flourish or to function. We don't know where to go, where to turn. We're having a difficult time just with daily existence. The journey of the wilderness... It was all about God's need, God's provision and our need. And so in this, there's a way, some ways that Nehemiah tells the story that we can structure it. And first you see that it's centered on the word. Verses 13 and 14 again. The second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, there are certain things that stick out in our minds. There are certain dates that ring true to us. Um, July 4th, 1776, ratifying of the Declaration of Independence. April 12th, 1861, starting the Civil War. June 6th, 1945, the end of World War II. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. September 11th, 2001, 9 11 there are certain dates that, as Americans, just stick in our brain. Moments. There are moments like that in your life. There are moments that are blessings that you always look back to. Um, there are moments of terrible things that you realize there's life before that, and now there's life after that. It's forever altering. Uh, Facebook memories helps with this, right? Um, I saw a Facebook memory the other day of our family getting pictures together during my wife's cancer journey. Um, my youngest, I was taller than him then. He's grown seven-eighths of an inch in the last two months, almost four inches in the last six months. Don't worry, I've started him on a diet of cigarettes and coffee. We're slowing that down. <laughs> um, not really. There's moments, though, There's days. There's the day my dad passed away. There's the day my wife was diagnosed with cancer. There's our wedding day. There's the birth of our three kids. There, There are good days. There are bad days. There are moments in our lives that change us. The wilderness wanderings were to be that kind of moment for Israel. They were to change them. They were to forever alter them. These defining moments in and the seventh month is all about the word reminding them of what life is and what it's actually all about. Nehemiah emphasizes the role of the word in their celebration of this. They come to this because they're studying the word. Nehemiah wants us to know that they are going to process through their wilderness wanderings because they heard God say, This is what you should do. I'm responding, it's not tradition. I'm doing this because the word says I should do it. Now I'm responding to the word, not just my history. I want to know from the word wilderness wanderings matter to God and how I think about the wilderness of my life matters to God. And so that's why I'm going to obey this. That's what Nehemiah wants ringing in our ears. This is the word is driving us. The word is among them now. You see it even down in verse 18. On day by day from the first to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. We're going to follow the word. Nehemiah understands this then. Any community of God's people must be founded on the word, centered on the word. God has been very kind to this church in the sense that it is a word-centered church. I think you can center church on lots of things. I'm convinced personally it must be a word-centered church. It must. God's people must be driven by whatever God's word says. Not what. You know why? Because we're not even. We're, we're a tiny church, right? Trying, but every one of us has our own opinion, our own our own uh, preferences, our own proclivities, our own stuff. And so the, what unites, what binds God's people together is we're going to be ruled by the word. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. It starts with the word. Even the celebration of the wilderness is the word. Now, here's what's fascinating about it. We know that the Feast of Booths is looking back to wilderness wanderings. Where, where was God in the wilderness wanderings? Right with them. He, he literally tabernacled with them, right? They built the tabernacle and here was God's presence. They could always look wherever their tent was that they lived in. When they came out in the morning, they could look and they could see literally God's presence resting over the tabernacle. His word was among them. The feast of booths and our wilderness wanderings always points us back to our desperate need of the word, the presence of God. Now, I don't I think any of us that have been through wilderness, which is literally every one of us, you have realized your desperate need of God in the middle of it. If you know and love Jesus, you're a believer, and you've been in one of these wilderness moments, deep, profound, personal need, I don't know how I'm going to function today. You've realized your need for the word, haven't you? Maybe you're even like me, right? So I By God's grace, I've spent more time in classrooms and books studying the word. And so I want you to know something. You will never get to a point in your life as a result of time, age, or study that in your wilderness moments you won't hit days where you you sit there and stare at the Bible and you're like, I don't even know what to read. I know I should read something. I don't know what what to read. This is a moment of need. Now I share that with you because I want you to know in that wilderness moment, the deserts of your life, when you don't know what to re- read, but you just have this deep sense you need God, that's not spiritual immaturity. That's life. And it's hard. And so every day as they walked out, not living in a home, back of the desert, scrubland. They're not planting crops. They're going out to gather manna, or they don't eat that day. They can't even plan very far for the future. That's what the wilderness is like, isn't it? Right? Like, I'm a planner by nature. You want to drive me nuts? Put me in a situation where there's nothing to plan at all. I'm not an organizer by nature. I married one of those. But I do like to know what's coming. Like, every day I get to gather manna, I don't even get to say, let's work twice as hard today so we can take tomorrow off. Because so if I do that, it's all rotten in the morning. The wilderness puts you in a place of daily need, doesn't it? It's frustrating that way, isn't it? But you know what you need most? What you realize you need most in the wilderness? It's God. And that's what's going on here. And so Nehemiah, the Feast of Booze, he's centering on the word, and it's a right reflection of what the original wilderness wandering was like. The second thing he emphasis, emphasizes excuse me, is the community comes out. You see it in verses 15 and 16. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts. Now listen to how extensive this is. And in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Literally, this is like a tent city. It's amazing how many people are involved in this. In the origin of the Feast of Booths in the wilderness, nobody had a permanent home. They all lived in tents for 40 years. Now, I think that's fascinating because um, there are people in our church, and there's been people in my life who love to camp. Great. I think you're crazy, but that's fun. It's fun for a night. I don't like smelling like off and... And I definitely don't like getting big by bugs. I like it comfortable. That's fine. For me, the best idea of camping is making a reservation, a hotel. But I'm not knocking you. Enjoy it. But I, do, I have noticed this. I, I grew up, my, my grandmother and grandfather loved camping. Um, they had a fifth wheel parked on the side of a mountain in West Virginia. And over the years, the decades that they owned this piece of property, uh, my grandmother was on mission to make this as comfortable as possible. So they built a gazebo. Um, we, 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 we had a permanent fire pit. Uh, they had the trailer there, had AC with it. And my grandmother started doing this. Um, her sons and her grandchildren may or may not have resented her for this moment. Um, but she always liked to be the last one to leave. She, she said, it's because it was just such a peaceful place for us. We'd all pull up the hill in our cars. I remember this vividly as a child and we'd wait for grandma, um, to, to make her way to it. She said she needed that last few moments. Well, you're not going to argue with grandma. good. Great. It was years later we found out what she was doing. She had secreted a bag of grass seed with her. And she would walk around and throw grass seed everywhere because she wanted it to have grass. Well, all of a sudden, they would leave their home in, in Maryland to drive to the campground, and you had to cut grass, and you had to... Mo- it was like a second homestead. She wanted her camping to be like living. It's called glamping, right? Glamorous camping. Glamorous camping. If you go through different uh, campgrounds, you'll see that certain people—certain people camp, right? But even people who camp, they like it to be comfortable. I'm not faulting you, um, but they want to sleep on an air mattress. They want an AC. They want a nice fan. They want it convenient. They—they they fix it, and that's actually part of the, what they enjoy about it—is the creative overcoming problems, making it comfortable. Can you imagine? You're going to live in a tent for 40 years. Now, when you think about the wilderness wanderings, my gut is many of you think that the children of Israel were walking around the wilderness every day. That's actually not what it was like. They actually spent years in specific locations. You can actually make the argument that they spent 30-plus of those years in one spot. But they didn't build homes there. They just lived in tents. Now, look, if I knew I was going to be in one spot for the next 40 years... I'm going to build something more permanent than a tent, aren't I? So would you. They didn't. Because they knew from God this was not their permanent place. They were just passing through. I'm going to sink roots shallow here. Because I'm not going to be here a long time. I'm not going to make permanent what's intended to be temporary. And so the whole community was on board with this, though. It's not that they were at the local campground that they walk out and there's this one camper. You don't know that it's ever been moved. Man, they got AstroTurf. They got the lights strung up, right? You know, you know the kind of folks I'm talking about. You're like, man, I don't think this is camping anymore for these people. That wasn't like that in the nation of Israel. They walked out. Everybody's in tents. Everybody's in a spot where they could literally pull up the stakes, wrap it all up, and move at a moment's notice because they never knew when God was going to move them. Can I just say that's one of the frustrating things about living in the wilderness of your own life, isn't it? When God has you in a spot where you feel like you really can't sink down roots. It's hard. We're designed to be kind of people who want a permanence, a safety, a security to it. And so the only thing that can, one of the things that can help you get through that is when everybody's in the same boat. And this is the way the community was. In the original wilderness wanderings, they all were that way. And what Nehemiah is emphasizing is that they're celebrating the Feast of Booths in his day. Everybody gets it. Everybody comes out. It. It's so extensive that you, the entire courtyards are filled with the, its tent city for a week. Booth city for a week. In Nehemiah's day, it was a choice, though. The nation of Israel had no choice in the original wilderness wanderings, but in Nehemiah's day... What he's telling us is everybody in the community is on board with this celebration. We all buy in. Word spreads over the entire area for everyone to get involved and everyone to participate. The first layer, and he's layering pictures here for us, the first layer of the image of the Feast of Booths at Nehemiah is the presence of the word. The second layer is the involvement and investment of the community. But there's a third one, and it's the fact that it reveals your heart. You see it in verses 17 and 18. All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. Now, there's a little bit of hyperbole that Nehemiah is using here, some exaggerated speech, but we can understand what he's saying here as we work our way through it. All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, lived in the booths, for from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. It was very great rejoicing. We're something like 70 years removed. Uh, from the original returners, probably 50 years or so, 40 to 50 years of Ezra. We're 500 years removed from Joshua coming into the promised land. And so when Nehemiah is saying that this feast had not been celebrated since Joshua, that's actually not what he's saying. We actually know he can't mean that because in Ezra 3-4, guess what they celebrated? The Feast of Booths. But Joshua is telling us how they celebrated it. It had not been celebrated since Joshua. And that's a fascinating moment. Because when they celebrated it with Joshua, they had just spent 40 years living in the wilderness. Think about, can you imagine them celebrating the Feast of Booze in the wilderness? Let, let me move out of my tent into this ramshackle collection of sticks. For a week to remind myself that I'm on this wilderness journey. It's kind of a funny thing. A little bit like, God, what are we doing here? But can you imagine when Joshua leads them in, and they conquer Jericho? They conquer cities. And when they conquer cities and they defeat them, they move into the homes. And what he's saying is when the people did that, and they celebrated the Feast of Booths in the seventh month, it was like for the first time they got it. The journey's over. The the wilderness wanderings have come to an end. And actually, when you zoom out even bigger, right, the Feast of Booths is like a seventh-month picture of the gospel. When you zoom out of the nation of Israel, you actually see the normal spiritual course for every person. You have the exodus where you are delivered from your sin. You have a wilderness wandering where you are following Christ on a daily basis. And one day you'll come home to the promised land. It's a journey towards glory. And you know what? In Joshua's day, they got it for the first time. That's what this is about. That was temporary. Now it's permanent. There was a joy, a delight. There was a fun in them to celebrate it. There was a recognition of what this really was. And what Nehemiah is saying is in their day, they finally got it. They realized what this is like. We were in Exodus in Babylon and we have come out, and we have journeyed, and now we're home again. And they're like, oh, I'm mind blown. We are celebrating how it is that God makes us sufficient in the midst of our neediness, how God is our protection, and how he's our provision, and how we don't have things to eat, and he meets our needs, and we don't have water to drink, and he makes water come from the rock, and and we don't know where he's at, but now his presence is among us. Oh, this is amazing. Let's all get on board and celebrate it. I don't know if you've ever been away from or out of the country. Um, longest I've been out of the country is about two weeks when I went to uh, China and Hong Kong. And, and I had some wonderful experiences. Um, I could not wait to get home and put my feet on American soil again. It was a great moment. That, that is nothing compared to soldiers that go away or others that are gone away for long periods of time and what is it you're really looking forward to? What is it you can't wait for? But there's something about coming home and there's something, frankly, about being away that makes you appreciate home. And so for them to be home, for them to be in Jerusalem and realize, oh, this is a celebration to remind ourselves of what it was like when God has cared for us all that time. And they're into it. What Nehemiah is saying is no one had celebrated this way. They hadn't got it. Well, what's changed from Nehemiah to Ezra? When in Ezra's day, when they celebrate it, they've already rebuilt the temple. What's changed is they're sitting there and they're surrounded by the walls of Jerusalem and it feels permanent. It feels like I've arrived. The Feast of Booths then is a reminder to these folks that God has done a great work in us and God has done a great work among us. It builds deep connection with one another. They see the connection between the wilderness of the forefathers and their own wilderness. It is imperative for us as believers to see the connection between the word in your life and my life. I actually hope in this moment there's parts of the sermon that have begun to ring in your life of the wilderness of your lives. But I'm actually also hopeful that as I've walked through this, you've been thinking, yeah, but we don't have Feast of Booths. I'm not Jewish, Steve. I didn't grow up with that. How is there a connection between this and the wilderness of my life? How is there a connection between this and the sorrows that I experience? How is there a connection between this and those confusing moments when I don't know what to do? How is there a connection between this and where I desperately need God's wisdom? How is there a connection between this and when I open the Word and I'm so hungry for God and I'm not even sure where to read? How is there a connection? How can you help me connect children of Israel, Nehemiah, Feast of Booths, and me in 2023? Well, that's a tall order. It has nothing to do with you, let's pray, and we're gone. No. There's actually some amazing connections, because even while it was an image that was pointing to the past, there is a glorious image of the future. What if I told you that just like the Jews in the wilderness wanderings are pointing ahead to Nehemiah about 800 years later from its inception, they are both pointing to a glorious future that we will experience. Let me, let me maybe present it this way. Have you ever wondered why they brought out palm branches and threw them down on Palm Sunday? Uh, this is one of those moments, like, I'm just curious. Does anybody here know why they did that? I'm not going to call it, you like. Working on my doctorate, found out this week. Funny, that's part of the reason I love to say the Bible. You're always like, oh, there's new things. There was one feast where they used palm branches. Hint: It's the Feast of Booths. So that's weird, right? Because in the fall, they have the Feast of Booths. But we all know Jesus's triumphal entry when he when he's riding in on this donkey and they're throwing down palm branches and they're saying Hosanna. The king is that's in the spring. So what's the connection? Palm branches had become for the children of Israel always a symbol of victory and peace. Now, now we're like, oh, okay, I, I. Oh, so they're in the wilderness for 40 years and they finally come into the promised land and Leviticus commanded them in 2340 to wave palm branches. It's a way of saying peace has arrived. Now, again, we're like, well, where's that connection? If you're going through the desert, what are you looking for? An oasis. Guess what grows in oases? Palms. Waving palm branches was a way of saying the journey's over, we've, run, we've come home. If you were in a large baggage train that was moving through the wilderness and you've got scouts ahead looking for something, water, rest, shade, protection... And when you think desert, don't think swarrow, cacti, and and total scrub. But do think scrub land with lack of clean water, only brackish water sitting in the ground, lack of animals to nourish you, and no real place to to grow crops because it was rocky soil and it just was terrible. And so very dry land. And if you had scouts coming back, what would they bring with them? Well, think about when they scouted the promised land. What did they bring back with them? Grapes. And fruits to say, it's true. So you don't just believe our stories. Well, guess what the scouts would come back with coming back to a baggage train? Palm fronds. We found an oasis. And you would believe them, wouldn't you? So they were told at the Feast of Booths, by God's command, to wave palm fronds and palm branches as a way of shouting, listen now, the journey's over. Victory has arrived. It's an amazing, beautiful moment. So when Jesus shows up, it had become etched in their psyche. It was a symbol of victory. If, uh, in the Olympics, uh, back in the day, they would make olive wreaths, right? And they'd wear a symbol of victory. We give gold medals now, a symbol of victory. Um, we, we, we make the V sign, victory sign, right? Or they may even say a peace symbol. Uh, you remember the, you know, the modern-day peace symbol uh, lying down the middle, lines go up next to it. And people have said, where did this come from? I don't know this is. And oh, it's from witches. No, it's not. Um, it is from a guy in Britain in the mid-50s. It's a semi-force signal. So guys with the flags, hold them down to the side, hold it up in the middle, and it stands for the letters D and N, nuclear disarmament. That's where the peace symbol comes from. It's a way of saying there's no threat of imminent death. That's what palm branches were to them. Jesus, Hosanna, the Messiah has arrived, victory has arrived, Peace is here. So palm fronds, because of God's declaration of the Feast of Booze, the wilderness is over, Victories arrive. arrived, we've come out of the desert, now we're in the land of milk and honey, victory's here, that's where palm branches came from. It is directly from the Feast of Booze. What if that points forward? And one day, John the Revelator says this, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. The Feast of Booths, we'll get to celebrate one day in heaven as we come to our permanent home. And it's all there, right? The word is now among us. The lamb is here. The victory has been achieved. I mean, it's so comical to me almost to realize at times what things are in heaven and which things aren't in heaven. There's going to be palm branches. I, think, I don't know who's hanging them out. Here's a palm branch, here's a palm branch, here's a palm branch. I don't know, but I know that in that moment we will say our wilderness is over. Peace and victory have come. There will be a joy and exuberance in us, shouting amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor, and power, and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. And so the word is there. The community is gathered. of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. I love that. We get to be with everybody who believes. Finally, there's no one there who is the enemy. We are safe, and we are secure, and we are home. And so, and so we have the word, and we have community, and our hearts are just put on full display. Because God has made fit, so the only ones there are true believers. And so we have these future pictures. So We have these overlapping images of the Feast of Booths, and we have this future picture. Israel's exodus, the wilderness, and the promised land point ahead to the spiritual reality of every person. It's so clear that in Nehemiah's day, the the community restoration was happening because they were able to connect their current life with God's big plan, one of the jobs of a pastor or a discipler, a counselor, a teacher, is to help people find the connection between their life right now and God's big overarching redemptive story. Where am I at in the story? It's obvious that in Nehemiah's day, when the community were able to do that, there was a massive response. Just an unbelievable wholesale buy into this, so that every courtyard is filled with all these, these dumb little huts. And so I come back to that question again does this really relate to our lives, though? How can we build the connection, us non Jewish Christians? thousand years later how how is that connection made well i think we can actually go back to those three things the word community and heart and and i think first of all the word is among us i would actually say this all those the feast of Booths and nehemiah and israel's actual experience in the wilderness they were pictures of our existence spiritually of the existence of every person in this room. And it was it was profound that the word had to be there. Well, what does Jesus say to us? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or in Hebrews, he says this way, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The word is in you like it has never, ever been in people before. to you in in at joshua's day they heard the wall the word they were given the law at mount sinai as they start their wilderness wanderings now we have the word and it's being given to us it's written over the span of those 40 years it's read to them in nehemiah's day they read the word and they respond to the word in the in heaven in the future the word literally will be in our presence jesus is the word made flesh And for every believer in this room, in the midst of your wilderness wandering of life, he has written the word on your hearts. And it's the abiding presence of the Spirit. It's the profound power of Christ in you. It's Jesus in you, coming out of you. The word is is among us like never before. The very sad reality is all of this energy of Nehemiah 8 dissipates by the end of the book. All the excitement, this fervor, this amazing response to the word in just a few chapters it's gone away like the wind. And it points the need to a community that the word is more permanent in their lives than just something they hear. Can I tell you that that is why God has designed it in the church now. He writes the word on your hearts. It's not just something that comes and goes. There's a permanence to it. It changes people because Christ is now in them. The word is among us. Well, it's not just the the word is among us, but the community is here. Remember what I told you at the beginning It's been discovered that celebrating joys together makes the joys better. Celebrating sorrows together makes them hurt more. I'm not going to lie to you about that. But it also creates a relational glue among you that you desperately need in your life. Well, what has he told us? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We are to enter into one another's lives. So we experience sorrow with one another, but we also experience rejoicing with one another. We build lasting bonds with each other as we think about and do life that way. Two years ago, when I started the doctoral program that I'm in right now, I had to pick a project to do. I had to. So, it's, so this is what they said. Look at your church, your current ministry, figure out what its needs are, and do a project that would help them in their greatest need. Like, okay. So I had a list of needs. And you know what's fascinating is we build this church on three core values from Acts, the book of Acts, word, worship, right, and community. And what's been fascinating to me is doing church life for 17 years now in the Bible belt of of the buckle of the Bible belt is to realize this. Everyone around us thinks they're a Christian. And out of those three things, out of those three core values, I was stunned which one is most offensive to people. It's not the word. It's almost like they come to church, lots of people, especially in the South, they expect to be a little offended by the word. (laughs) That actually makes my job easier. I'm okay with that. I like that. Worship. Look, the worship wars have been fought, and they will be fought. They've literally been fought the entire history of the church. and continue to be fought. But the idea, the concept that we should gather with other believers, sing his praises, give of our money, celebrate communion and baptism together, it's like everybody's like, yeah, that's good. But the idea, the audacity to believe that we should be involved, involved in one another's lives in a deep spiritual way? That we're to be accountable to one another? If you'd asked me 17 years ago, I never would have guessed that that's what would tick people off. You want to make people mad? I've discovered that's how you make them mad. Any expectation that you would ask them spiritual questions? Where are you at in your walk? How are you doing spiritually? How's your singleness? How's your marriage? How's your parenting? How's your work life? How's Jesus growing and changing you? How can I come along beside you and help you grow and change to be like Jesus? 17 years in, I discovered that's what makes people mad. That people are really okay with just coming and sitting, and not knowing anybody, and not being connected, and not being involved, being involved. I'm not talking about a process of discovery. Is this a church for me? But I mean long-term. And so I said, I think that's the project we need to do. So I think it's fascinating that where we're at in Nehemiah and in God's sovereign timing, that's what we're going to work on. Because there's so much theological truth I'm excited about. But can I just tell you this? Whether it's sociologists who don't even believe the word, or more profoundly, the the, what Jesus actually says, and what we see pictured like places like this. Can I tell you this? You should do life with people who can rejoice with you and who weep with you. And I don't know how to say this to you, but it makes life better, but also makes life godlier. And it helps you when you're sorrowing, and it ministers grace to you. And it's His plan. And so, whether it's the presence of the Word, listen, we are living Feast of Booths. <laughs> We are. Last Sunday was a glorious Sunday. We celebrate communion together. and Those of you who were able to be with us, I think you know this, you would affirm this. It was a wonderful time together and then a wonderful time of just testimony and prayer time. We had very little time to pray because there was so many testimonies of just God's kindness. I love that. God has designed us to do wilderness together. But then thirdly, hearts are put on display. On the last day of the feast, they had this interesting thing. It's called the water libation ceremony. <laughs> and when you understand the wilderness wanderings, you get why they did this, right? Because they come to this point, they don't have any water. So God brings water from the rock. Jesus literally is the rock that the water comes out of. Right? That's the picture. And so the Jews developed this thing that they were like, oh, let's do a water libation ceremony at the end of the Feast of Booths. And so they would get all this water, and it's where they'd pour water on the altar, and it would flow down. It's just flowing just mountains of water that they would bring out. Everybody's excited because if you're in the wilderness, what you need most is water. And hearts are put on display as they celebrate God's provision. In In the wilderness, again, it's all about your neediness. They didn't plant crops. God gave bread every day. They didn't know where the water was coming from. He gave it out of the rock. They didn't know where to go, so he put a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, and so they had something to follow. Well, then we have this moment, and Darren read it this morning. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths in John 7. And they're getting ready to do the water libation ceremony, and suddenly Jesus stands up at their Feast of Booths. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The feast of booze is designed to give a physical picture to the spiritual reality of every Christian everywhere. We are in the wilderness of life, but we are led by the word. We are in the wilderness, but we are headed home. We are in the wilderness, but not alone. We are with others. We are in the wilderness hungry and thirsty, yet we are fed by God. We are in the wilderness because God is with us and he surrenders other people who are with us. And so we are never, we're in a whole tent city of wanderers. Welcome wanderers. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. We're journeying together. How has God met you in your wilderness journey? How has he met you with direction from his word, with sustenance in your walk, with the quenching love and love of Christ? Um, <laughs> it's funny, I'm going to tease. tease my wife a little bit this morning. Um, she was into gotten into succulents over the last couple of years, and she has killed some succulents. Like like they we have seen much succulent death at our home, and, and it was funny because she she loves them. So I've bought them some. You know those those have passed away and they've gone on right. Um, and others and succulents are basically desert plants. That's what they are. So she just bought some succulents about two months ago, and I said, look, if these don't make it, we're getting fake, right? So she has them in our, in, our, in our bedroom on the windowsill. Sun comes in, and she's been taking care of them, and they're desert plants. And one of them has done something that's astoundingly rare. It grew this, like, vine coming out of the top of it. I mean, I, I mean is this thing, like, 18 inches long now or something like that? It's amazing. So, like, and then it developed all these buds on it. I'm like, what have we got going on? And she was, like, so excited every day. She's like, did you see this? And I mean, this thing is unbelievable. I, um, my one son, I, I remember he was called the Tower of Doom or whatever. And I'm, I'm like, I'm like, it's like the Tower of Hope. It's amazing. Yesterday morning, I was trying to sleep in a little bit. Maybe on Friday morning. And all of a sudden, my, my wife wakes me up. Did you see it? It bloomed. And if you do research on this plant, it tells you this is exceedingly rare. The only time a plant in the desert blooms like this, this plant, is when it's really happy and is flourishing. My wife has been redeemed in her succulent care. <laughs> She's like an expert now. I can't tease her anymore about it. It's amazing. This morning before I came, there's two blooms on it. It's like, what is this thing doing? I just want you to know in your wilderness wandering, sometimes flourishing is just putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes flourishing is just being able to come and be with us. I'm so glad you're here. And sometimes flourishing is God has something bloom out of your life, even in a desert place. And so it's amazing because even in the wilderness, we can be happy and safe and secure because his word is with us. He feeds our hungry souls. And because we do it together, So we may not be Jews who can build little booths outside and celebrate Sukkot. But we can actually celebrate Sukkot as we do life together. And I just want you to know it's good to wander in this wilderness with you folks. Every one of you. Every one of you. Some of you I've known very short. Some of you I know very little. Some of you I've known 17 years. It's good to wander with you because we wander together with Christ. Father, I ask that you would continue